Good day to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day. It is time to do our summary of 2 Corinthians. Now this may take a while, but it hopefully will not be as long as the previous two, but you know, the length of them is just what it is. If it's too much, you can always give me some feedback and let me know. But uh, So this is 2 Corinthians. I'm just going to go through each chapter and do a quick little summary. So uh, chapter 1, I think our key verses here are verses 3 and 4. Blessed, gratefully praised, and adored be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts and encourages us in every trouble, that we will be able to comfort and encourage those who are in any kind of trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, we are able to share the blessings, the kindness, the mercies of God with others because we receive that from him and it's easier for us to share that. And he's thinking, he's basically thanking and praising God for this. <clears throat> and I think that is a, a big deal in this chapter. Paul blesses God for comfort and deliverance in times of trouble. Um, he professes his and the other laborers, his the other folks um, that are like him, working with him. He, he professes their integrity. And he explains why he didn't come to the Corinthians again as he had originally wanted. So that is that is the essence, the short shift, or the short shrift, the short, the gist. That is the gist of chapter one. Now in chapter two, Paul continues or finishes up why he didn't visit, and he directs them to restore the one who has repented and uh, speaks to the uh, motive of spreading the gospel and that it is not for gain. He's not doing it to make money. Uh, as some, you know, as he continues on, he's gonna, you're going to understand why he's talking about this. Um, but verse 14 in chapter 2, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us spreads and makes evident everywhere the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of him. So, that is how Paul feels, you know, being triumphant everywhere he goes and, and spreading the knowledge of God. Okay, and that's an important thing. And that speaks to the motive of why they're spreading the gospel and they're not doing it for, they're not doing it for gain. They're doing it for God, for the Lord himself. Now, then we move to chapter 3. Now, chapter 3. <clears throat> um, let's look at verse 17. I'm, I'm kind of saying these are like kind of key verses. Um, you could probably go through and pick other verses as well, but I just want to make sure that we get you know, something out of this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, emancipation from bondage, true freedom. So he's talking about the true freedom of being with the Lord, in spirit, being a part of, um, being a part of Jesus' church and following, and we're going to go into this here. How the gospel in this chapter he covers how the gospel is better than the law, and if you look at verse eleven for that, and mind you, I am reading. I, I did not mention this in the beginning. Apologize for that. I am reading out of the Amplified Bible, but verse eleven says, "For if that law which fades away came from." came with glory 
How much more must that gospel which remains and is permanent abide in glory and splendor? See, the law has passed away, but the gospel that we have, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is permanent and ongoing. And how much glory there must be in that gospel. The gospel is unveiled, and we are free to understand. Paul talks of the gospel being unveiled. We are free to understand and learn of God and the word of God and the gospel. And we are able to grow and be more like Jesus and God. So, and again, that goes, that speaks down to verse 17, that we are free to know. You know, we are free, there is liberty, we are free to know and to be more like our God. Now here we're moving on to uh, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. Now Paul speaks of the apostles, uh, their faithful ministry. Verse 6, let me... Uh, here we get, well, verse 6 is, okay, there we go, sorry, sometimes my eyes. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory and majesty of God, clearly revealed in the face of Christ. <clears throat> he and the others, he talks of he and the others, the other ministers of the gospel, how they suffer for the gospel. But the eternal reward, the eternal prospects, keep them going. That encourages them, motivates them to continue. And let's go down, and this should be motivation for us. Let's look down at verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not become discouraged, spiritless, disappointed, or afraid. Though our outer self is progressively wasting away, yet our inner self is being progressively renewed day by day. Now, that's talking about our spirit. For our momentary light distress, this passing trouble, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, a fullness beyond all measure, surpassing all comparisons, a transcendent splendor, and an endless blessedness. So we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are visible are temporal, just brief and fleeting, but the things which are invisible are everlasting and imperishable. So because their focus is on God and on the ministry and on following Jesus and and on the spiritual things in life, then they are not looking at these temporary, you know, these temporary distresses. It says this for our momentary light distress, you know. And this is a guy who was like basically almost put to death so many times, but he calls it our momentary light distress. So um, <clears throat> I wish I could be that good. I'm, I'm not that good. But nonetheless, um, when you have your focus right, when we focus on spiritual things, it, it does us a, a world of good. It really encourages us and keeps us keeps things in perspective so that we can get through this life and um, help spread the gospel to others and show uh, others, hopefully, how, how to live. All right, so um, we're moving on to chapter 5. Now, in chapter 5, Paul contrasts living here in our bodies on, on the earth with living in eternal heaven. Now, if you look at verses 6 through 8, So then, being always filled with good courage and confident hope, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
living our lives in a manner consistent with our confident belief in God's promises, we are, as I was saying, of good courage and confident hope, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So in other words, we would prefer to be at home with the Lord, to be in heaven, but, you know, we're not, so we're filled with good courage and confident hope, and uh, we know that we are absent from the Lord, and we would prefer to be in heaven. So, um, this is why we are, you know, we try to please God, and we try to persuade others to come to Christ. Um, if we look at verses 10 and 11, find in the beginning of 10, there we go. For we, believers, will be called to account and must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be repaid for what has been done in the body, whether good or bad. That is, each will be held responsible for his actions, purposes, goals, motives, the use or misuse of his time, opportunities, and abilities. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord and understand the importance of obedience in worship, we persuade people to be reconciled to him. But we are plainly known to God. He knows everything about us. And I hope that we are plainly known also in your conscience and consciences, your God-given discernment. But you'll notice that, therefore, because we know that we're going to have to, you know, justify our use of time and our abilities and all to the Lord, therefore, we know we understand the importance of obedience and worship. We persuade, we persuade people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Because we don't want them to be eternally separated. We don't want them to fail. This is, this is the only real test in life that matters. Is whether you go to heaven to be with the Lord. Or whether you are eternally absent from God. And I don't know what that will be like. Or what that would be like. But. It's always referred to as like a fiery pit or torment or hell. I don't want any of those things. None of those things sound good to me. So I don't want anyone else to experience those things. They don't sound good. So, now also, <clears throat> he also talks about that uh, Christians, um, we are new creatures reconciled to God. Let's go down to verse 17 in this chapter. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as Savior, he is a new creature, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things, the previous moral and spiritual condition, have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings a new life. When we are baptized into Christ, when we um, become a part of the body of Christ, when we become a Christian, we are a new creation. The old things are passed away, and that goes through so many things. It does take work to get rid of some of those old habits and old ways of thinking and old, you know, depending on how old you are, you may have built up some, some pretty bad habits. I, I've had really bad habits at times that I didn't realize were wrong. And then later when I knew they were wrong, it was very hard to get rid of them. But that is part of being a Christian is that we 
Uh, it says old things are passed away. Now, God forgives us and he forgives us all our past. And he's gracious and merciful and forgives us for our current, you know, um, wrongdoings or sins and mistakes. And uh, when you're a new Christian, you make a lot of mistakes. You don't even know you're making mistakes. And, of course, God forgives those. You don't even know what you're doing. But as you learn and move on, you know, and follow follow the Lord, you know, you're going to have more of those times where you are tempted to do something. And real sin is when you know you shouldn't do something and you do it. And Unfortunately... We're people, we're human, we have times where we do what we know we shouldn't do. We're stubborn, maybe we're mad, maybe we're angry, I, anyway. But when you become a Christian, you are a new creature in Christ, and all that stuff is washed away, and you can start fresh from there, and just work with God every day, and grow into being more like Jesus, and like we say, all that old stuff, you know, it just passes away. But it does take work to get rid of some of those habits and some of those old things that we built up as people. Okay, It's not like, ooh, somebody flips a switch and you're perfect. Don't want to give you the wrong impression. So then, <clears throat> Paul also talks about we are ambassadors. And we are pleading to others to be reconciled to God. We want, us, we want them to be saved, not because... Not just because we're saved, but like I said earlier, we don't want them to end up having eternal damnation or being in some awful state for eternity. This this temporary life is just very temporary. Um, we don't want them, because of things they do here in this short temporary world and life, we don't want them to end up eternally in, you know... Um, eternally separated from God in an awful state. So verse 20, So we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We, as Christ's representatives, plead with you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And that is just simply what we do as Christians when we, whenever, whenever we have the opportunity and it's reasonable to do so, we do that. Um, where there's no point, there's no point browbeating somebody or trying to whoop them into it or, you know, bringing out the hammer and, and beating them till they, you know, none of that, none of that works. But when we have opportunity, when people are interested, when they say, hey, you know, how come you are not stressed? How come you're happy? You seem like you've got it together. Well, we can tell them, hey, it's not, it's not me. It's God. It's, it's the Lord. It's not anything about me. And we can point them in that right direction. Or if they're going through a downtime and we can help them in some manner and say, look, you know, if you're interested, we'll be happy to talk to you about the Lord. Be happy to, um, you could come to church and maybe someone there better than, <clears throat> that could speak to you better than myself could talk to you about the Lord. Any of those things would be a possibility. So, so he's telling them how, you know, We are ambassadors for Christ, okay? Even, <clears throat> now I think primarily, if you think about it, he's speaking about him. If you look at this from a very personal, first-person point of view, he's speaking about him and the ministers. But this really applies to all of us. 
really applies to all of us. And I think he also intended them to, to realize that they too should be ambassadors for Christ. But they were, you know, they were still a new church. And, you know, I don't, I don't know at this time how long they had been around or how much these people knew compared to how much Paul knew. You know, Paul was very well versed and educated. All right. So chapter six. Now in chapter six, <clears throat> Paul encourages them to not turn away from sound doctrine, or he encourages them not to be misled by others, because that is something that's been a problem. Paul and company, you know, his group, his, his, uh, the disciples, the apostles, the real apostles, they performed faithful ministry there, um, even through much hardship in the world, but um, God has led them through all these hardships. If we look at verses 7 and 8, in speaking the word of truth in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand, like holding the sword to attack, and for the left, like holding the shield to defend, amid glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, branded as deceivers, and yet vindicated as truthful. So, this is a, this is a very long sentence, and I kind of jumped in on the end of it. But he's just speaking about what they have, what they have been through, and that they are, they are vindicated as truthful. And you know, God, God brought them, brought them through this, so they would be vindicated as truthful. Now, also, <clears throat> there is Paul gets into down in verse fourteen. Do not be unequally bound together with unbelievers. Do not make mismatched alliances with them inconsistent with your faith. For what partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, the idea here is, if you really pay attention, do not be unequally bound together with unbelievers. Now, the idea is, do not be tied to ungodly people in such a way as they have control over you. Now, admittedly, in some cases, you know, you don't have a choice. Admittedly, we're already, like, I'm already an employee for some company, or I'm already whatever. Okay, we don't have a choice. We're going to do the best we can. But, as much as we can, in circumstances, we should try to, to not be, you know, bound to ungodly people who are going to work, require ungodly things of us because that's going to create issues. And when you're bound to someone who doesn't believe, doesn't have the faith, and they're really just out for themselves and out for what they can get, that's what they're going to expect you to be like too. And so their expectations and what they're going to ask of you is going to follow in their way of thinking and their belief. And you don't want to be where you have to make that hard choice, you know, sometimes we have to make that hard choice. We have to say, no, I'm not doing that. And if that means I lose out on this opportunity or this job or whatever, then that's life. That's what we do. But as much as is possible, we don't want to be caught in those situations. We don't want to need to go through that. We don't want to put our families and other loved ones through that. So we should not be unequally bound with unbelievers who would not have the same 
um, interests in Christ and God that we do and would not understand and would not want to pursue those, you know, they wouldn't have the same moral standings either. They would not, under, and they may not even understand your moral standings against certain things. So, and, and he goes on in several <clears throat> several verses, like in verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So, you know, it's hard for us to agree and work with with others in those situations if they're asking us to do things that are wrong. Now, like I say, this is being unequally bound to being yoked to them, as some, some translations say, in such a way that they really have control over you and that... Um, you know, it puts you in that bad spot. This is this is really uh, an an advice. This is really a uh, I guess you could call it. A, I don't like to call things a commandment, but but nonetheless, I mean, this is an instruction um, uh, that you know we should follow as much as we can. That that would really cut down on the amount of worldly pressure you have on you to do things that's that you feel are wrong, or to be involved in things you feel are wrong. So, then in verse, we're going to move on, not verse, I apologize, so then we're going to move on to chapter 7. Um, uh, just to retouch on that, the idea is not to give others and unbelievers control of your life, but to have your life be controlled by the Lord, by God, see, and, and, and follow those moral standings of God. So, all right. <clears throat> so, uh, chapter 7, Paul talks about we should live a consecrated life set apart for God. You notice how he moves from one, this is a, a, a logical flow of thought. Instead, we should live a consecrated life set apart for, um, for God's approval and, um, Let's see, he will commend, he will commend us for our repentance and our change. Uh, verses 10 through 11, 10 and 11, I should say. For godly sorrow that is in accord with the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe, produces death. For you can look back and see what an earnest, okay, see what an earnestness and authentic concern this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves against charges that you tolerate sin, what indignation at sin, what fear of offending God, what longing for righteousness and justice, what passion to do what is right, what readiness to punish those who sin and those who tolerate sin, at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. He's talking about them repenting and changing their ways and not allowing sin in their, you know, they had problems with sin in their congregation. And, and obviously they had repented and changed in a number of ways from Paul's first letter to them. So, you know, definitely he's, um, approving and commending them for that repentance and change, and that's how God approves and commends us for our repentance and change when we do those things. Um, he praises them for 
working with and heeding Titus and how they received him. They received him well. Then we move on to chapter 8. Paul reminds them of the charitable giving and the need of the saints in Jerusalem. And he kind of puts it to them in kind of a challenge, challenging them to be uh, you know, as giving as they can be, to give whatever um, they can and to give sincerely. But he's not encouraging them. While he does kind of challenge them a little bit, he's not encouraging them to like make their families go hungry or do anything foolish like that. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that when we give, we're giving out of our abundance. And he, he mentions that. But let's look at verses 12 through 14. For if the eagerness to give is there, it is the acceptable according of what one has, not according to what one does not have. Don't go in debt for forgiving. For it is not intended that others be relieved of their responsibility and that you be burdened unfairly, but that there be equality in sharing the burden. At this present time, your surplus over necessities, your abundance, is going to supply their need, so that at some other time their surplus may be given to supply your need, that there may be equality. So, he's talking about giving from our abundance, from our surplus. He's not talking about from give, you know, giving out of anything that we need for food, for water, for shelter. You know, nowadays I know the world's a little different, but the same things apply. You don't want to give. You don't want to put yourself in debt with charitable, charitable giving because that is not a good idea. And you don't want to give what you need to live on and what your family needs. You want to make sure you're taking care of them first also. So then, um, you know, after talking about the giving, he recommends Titus to them that they should accept him. Now let's look down at verse 24. And that's because he sent, I think, my understanding is he's sending Titus back, I think, with this letter again. So therefore, show these men in the sight of the churches the proof of your love and our reason for being proud of you. So he's encouraging them to show these men, Titus and, and whoever travels with Titus, because I don't think they traveled alone a lot because it wasn't safe. So, um, you know, there's always safety in, in numbers. So he was encouraging them to uh, to show these to accept these these men Titus and and his guys and and to uh, show them the proof of their love and reason for being proud of them in what they're giving and also to receive them well and you know maybe give them a place to stay you know all these things that would happen back then you would need to be able to put up one of these traveling ministers and and help them out. All right, so a lot of a lot of things in that. So then, in chapter nine, um, he explains why he's sending Titus ahead like this, so that they would have their gift prepared, and he gives more encouragement to give generously and cheerfully. And we we still use this today. If you look at verse seven, let me get there with my tired eyes. There we go. Let each one give thoughtfully and purposefully, and with purpose, just as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver 
and delights in the one whose heart is in his gift. And that's, I think that's another reason we pray over our gift. I don't know that, I don't know if it says they did that back then or not, but we kind of say a prayer. And we do that because we want to give, because we love God and we love one another and we want to help one another. So, we want to help our church, we want to further the word and the work of the church. So, these are good reasons to give, and I think that's why we pray over our gift as well, so that our heart is in it. All right. So he also, Paul also praises the Corinthians, praises them for their gift and how the saints pray for them. The saints in Jerusalem pray for them in return. He makes a comparison to God's grace, you know, and giving help to others and asking, you know, not asking anything in return. Um, because that's how, that's how we should be. We should be giving to others and helping others just as God has given to us. And, you know, the free, like the free gift of uh, salvation, you know, um, God gives us that. And we have that. And that is free. There's, there's not a requirement for that, that, you know, any kind of work that we have to do for that. All these other things we do are, are on top of and blessings, you know, for us to do these things. It is good for us and blessings for us to do these things. All right, so we're moving on to chapter 10. And in chapter 10 now begins the discussion of Paul, his ministry, and false teachers. He has kind of alluded to that in some previous parts of the letter, but here... He starts with the contrast of how he is with them in person and how he is by letter. Because they mention, um, they had mentioned to him at some point that he is not very, um, let me see if I can find, let's, let's go, look at verse 5, let's see if I can find the right, the right verse here. We are destroying sophisticated arguments and every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought and purpose captive to the obedience of Christ. So, the difference is how he appears when he is before them. They say, he says, I, who, this is up in verse 1, I who am meek. So they say, when with you, face to face, but bold, outspoken, and fearless toward you and absent, meaning that he's one way away from them, like in these letters, and he's another way when he's with them. Well, he's trying to treat them in love. And even in his letters, when he's speaking to them, and it may seem like he's dealing with them a little harshly, it's still in love. He's telling them these, these are the things they ought not to do. And here he's talking about, in verse 5, he's talking about the, uh, he reasons, let me explain, he reasons with them how they should not only look at the outward appearance of things, and that they should look at, you know, the real, the real heart and spirit of the matter. If we look down at verse 11, let such people realize that what we say by word in letters when we are absent is the same as what we are in action when present. So, 
he's saying there is no real difference, and he's you know he's he's seeking only the glory of God and God's approval. He's trying to teach them and show them how to be, and by letter, you know, he's trying to tell them how to what to do, what not to do, what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. We go down to verse 18. He gives his reason for this. Now, you can also include verse 17. Uh, However, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends and praises himself who is approved by God, but it is the one who the whom the Lord commends and praises. So, Paul is trying to reason with them and explain to them, you know, what what he's doing. Like what I read in verse five, he's trying to uh, trying to defeat these arguments. Let me go back to that real fast. We're destroying sophisticated arguments and every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. So that's what he's trying to do in his letters because they have these people, these false um, teachers or apostles coming in and teaching things contrary to what Paul and the others have taught them. So he's trying to straighten them out. And he explains, you know, that he's seeking only the glory of God and God's approval because that's what matters. And that's the idea of the last verse, verse 18. Now, if we move to chapter 11, Paul worries that they have received and accepted wrong teaching. Okay? Let's look at verse 3. But I am afraid that, even as the serpent beguiled Eve by his cunning, your minds may be corrupted and led away from the simplicity of your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's very simple. He feels like they've been taught and led astray that they have accepted this wrong teaching. He asked them to consider, you know, if... Oh, wait, I skipped ahead. I'm sorry. So he reminds them that he freely preached the gospel to them with no charge, okay? Now, their habit, or that's not the right word, uh, it was kind of a socially acceptable thing there in Greece that these traveling speakers would be paid. I don't know if they took up collections or how they did it, but they would pay the speaker for speaking. But Paul reminds them that he freely preached the gospel to them at no charge. And then he asked them to consider if that was somehow actually wrong. You know, because that wasn't their social norm, because it wasn't normal for them, was that somehow wrong? But he explains he did so out of love and will continue to do that to disprove the false teachers. You know, because he's doing it not to make money. See, they're the false teachers, I think at some point, didn't understand that Paul didn't get paid and they thought he was doing it just to make money. Verse 12 in uh, chapter 11 but what I am doing, I will keep doing, for I am determined to keep this independence in order to cut off the claim of those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things they brag about. So, And then he continues in verse 13, For such men are counterfeit apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And that's who he's talking about there. And then he boasts about the suffering and difficulties that God has delivered him through. Okay, We should note 
that he's boasting about all these sufferings and difficulties, but he's boasting about it not on his own part, but because God has brought him through all of these things. So let's go down to verses 24 and 25. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent adrift on the sea. So he's talking about all these crazy things he's been through for the gospel to spread all this. And he was doing this not to make money, not for himself. You know, nobody would go through all of this just to make some money. There's easier ways to make money. So this is part of his um, his logical process of speaking with them and to try to, you know, have them understand. So then we move to chapter 12. Now Paul continues to boast, and he's boasting about his visions and his revelations now. Okay, he's talking about basically saying how close he is to God. He boasts and explains how his weaknesses shows God's strength. God delivers him and takes care of him, and his grace is sufficient, which is part of, you'll remember that being a part of this, where he talks about a thorn of the flesh, and um, <clears throat> God says, my grace is sufficient. But I want to look at verse 10. So I am well pleased with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak in human strength, then I am strong, truly able, truly powerful, truly drawing from God's strength. Now I always think of this in a different way, and it's because it helps me. I say, for when I am strength, weak, uh, for when I am weak, then God is strong, or Jesus is strong, the Lord is strong within me, and they help me get through. That's how I think of that, and that is what he means. That's what he's talking about. Then he is strong in God when he is weak. When we are weak in a human, physically, physical, uh, fleshly way, then we are strong in Christ and in the Lord. So, then he reminds them of the signs and miracles that uh, he and uh, the others had performed through the power of God in front of them. You know, he's trying to remind them that they they should not be swayed by these other people. You know, he's trying to speak to them logically, and he voices his concern about their spiritual condition. He's worried that all of this has drugged them down. Verse twenty. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry, tempers, disputes, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. So, he doesn't want that for them. He wants the best for them. And he's saying, you know, I'm concerned that I'm going to find these problems. And, and some of those problems come back from even like the first letter. Then finally, in chapter 13, Paul warns them of continuing in sin. In verse 2, I've already warned those who have sinned in the past, and all the rest as well. And I warned them now, even though I am absent from you, as I did when I was with you the second time, that if I come back, I will not spare anyone. So, he's, he's warning them, though, not to be continuing in sin. Now, um... 
He tells them to test and evaluate themselves. If you look down in chapter 5, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 5, test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me, or do you not recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test and are rejected as counterfeit? Test and evaluate yourself. And this is something we should always do. We should always be evaluating ourselves. We should make sure <clears throat> that our actions are following our words and that our words are following the Word of God, really. So our actions should be in line with both what we say and our, what we say should be in line with the Word of God. And so our actions should also be in, align, in alignment with the Word of God. So Paul prays for their continued right doing, you know, to continue to walk in the faith. This is in verse 7, but I pray to God that you may do nothing wrong, not so that we in our teaching may appear to be approved, but that you may continue doing what is right, even though we, by comparison, may seem to have failed. In other words, he doesn't care about his appearances or how his teaching may appear. He's praying for them to follow God, to follow the Lord, and to be in good standing and to continue right doing regardless. Then he has some final instructions um, to be complete in peace with God and with each other. And this is in verse 11. Let me get there. Finally, believers, rejoice. Be made complete. Be what you should be. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Enjoy the spiritual well-being experienced by believers who walk closely with God. And the God of love and peace, the source of loving kindness, will be with you. So he's encouraging them to be complete in peace, to be with God, and to be in peace with each other. And then he ends, he ends the letter with a, a blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that, I know that was longer than I expected, but that was Second Corinthians. That is the that is my summary for that. Basically, he's trying to get them to not listen to the false teachers. I mean, if you really want to cut it down just to very short, he's trying to get them to not listen to the false teachers, to uh, continue in their uh, their giving to the uh, saints at Jerusalem, to prepare that gift for him to deliver, um, to restore the one that had been mentioned in the previous letter that had been sinning and that had repented, obviously. And he expresses that he's worried about them, that they've been listening to these false teachers and that they uh, may have, you know, um, kind of strayed away off the course uh, due to that. So, all right, so that is my summary of 2 Corinthians. I um, want to thank you for listening. I, I know it's probably been quite long, but I thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. When we come back, we'll start Galatians. And remember, God loves you.